0: Good evening, it's so good to be back with you again and spending some time with you. I've really enjoyed the last several months of us being able to spend some time together and as Adam mentioned, as you all know, you've got a young man coming to work with you shortly so this is the last time you'll see me at least for a little while, hopefully not too terribly long. But as I thought about that and and we kind of wrapped the series this morning, I thought about what? If I was gonna leave you for a while, what's the most important thought I could leave you with? If you don't see me maybe ever again, what's the most important thought that I could leave you with? In all of scripture, I'm convinced that this is one of the most overriding and important thoughts that there is. And that's the idea that no matter what, there's always a path back home. I have a lot of conversations and studies with people Where they say things to me like, Mike, you don't understand what I've done. There's no way I can come back to church. There's no way I can come back to God. That what I've done and sins I've committed in my life, the things that I've seen, it's just not there for me. Nobody will ever let me in. If they do, they'll all ridicule me. That the things that I've done and what I've been through and the person that I was or am has no place with religion. Well, there's two very important reasons why that's completely wrong. One is that that's the devil speaking to us, telling us that we're not worthy of redemption. And the devil whispering in our ear that God doesn't want you, that you're not valuable, and that there's no way back home. But two, it's completely unbiblical. Because when we're honest with the text of the Bible story, it's full of people that made a disaster of their lives and came back, that made multiple mistakes over and over and over again and kept coming back. If we're really, really honest with understanding what the Bible is, it's a story of a bunch of people like you and me, that on some days we're good and when we're good, we can be really good, but on other days we're terrible people. Sometimes it's impetuous. Sometimes it's premeditated. Sometimes we make terrible decisions and we follow it all the way through and we're awful and terrible people. But even in those circumstances, there is always a path back home. What I love about reading the scriptures is not only is it the word of God, but it's honest. You ever thought about how honest the scriptures are? That when we look at some of these Bible characters that we elevate to superhero status. That the Bible is just as honest about their flaws as they are about their good. That the Bible is just as honest about how bad they are when they're bad as how good they are when they're good. And what we find from our human experience is that none of us are really good or bad that all of us along the way sometimes do awful things and sometimes do good things just like everybody else but i think about if i could put one bible character in front of you to make this point because i think this this point is so significant to everybody that we care about and love if i could put one bible character in front of you i don't think i could do better than david Because David was a man after God's own heart, right? Every time you think about David, you hear King David. David is a man after God's own heart. But have you ever honestly studied the life of David and how much of a disaster David was? David at times is a scumbag and a terrible person. And at times, he's the best guy that there ever was. But David's life is full of ups and downs. And David had a winding path. You know, we talk about being on the straight and narrow, and and that's the way we need to go. The path to righteousness is straight, but the path to unrighteousness is broad. But if we're honest with ourselves, nobody stays on that path. Sometimes we're on the good path to the straight and narrow, and sometimes we're in the woods acting a fool. David is the best person I can give you and put forward for your consideration tonight as a life that's full of these ups and downs, that's full of sin and consequences. But was David a man after God's own heart because he didn't have sin? Obviously not, because we're going to look at all this text tonight. David was a man after God's own heart because of what he did about his sin. Friends, if you all get to the point here, and I don't believe there's anybody here tonight, but if you are, if you're here tonight and you figured this whole thing out where you've completely stop sinning and you have no need for god or jesus in your life please raise your hand because i want to have a conversation with you because i haven't i'm a mess and the reason i'm here is because i keep making mistakes and i keep coming back because i need more god and i need more jesus in my life because some days i'm just not a good person the whole point of understanding our relationship with God is that it's not that we don't sin. It's about what we do about our sin. What do we do when we mess up? That's how we are either one after God's own heart or somebody that's after the world. It's about the reaction to our sin. So when we talk about David and we talk about his life, what I want us to understand is that David wasn't immune from sin, but David understood what to do about his sin. And that's where you and I are going to pick up the study tonight. What are we talk about? We talk about sin. Well, sin is transgression of the law. Whoever commits sin, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, commits lawlessness. Or as the King James Version puts it, whoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. So, what are we talking about here? In plain, simple country boy English. God says do stuff, we don't do it. God says don't do stuff, and we do it. That's that's what we're talking about here. The inability for us to follow the instructions of our Heavenly Father. And when we do that, we are going against Him. We are rebellious, and we are doing things of our own will. So let's look at some of these points where David did this in life. Well, the first one in 2 Samuel chapter 6 is in moving the Ark of the Covenant. I'm sure there's none of you that want to still be here at midnight. Uh, So instead of reading all of these stories and accounts, we're going to give the Reader's Digest quick version. And I guess at some point I'm going to have to change that because nobody nobody in the back has any idea what a Reader's Digest is. Um, The TikTok version, I don't know. I'm going to have to come up with some other colloquialism. But we're going to give the condensed version, the abridged version of these stories. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, They have left the ark, and they want to bring that ark back to the city of David. So, all well and good, right? We're starting off with a good intention. We're going to bring the ark back. What's the problem that we run into in 2 Samuel chapter 6? is that they don't want to bring the ark back the way God told them to transport the ark. Because in the Levitical law, it says if you're going to transport the ark, it is supposed to be done carried on poles by Levites that are priests, And they're supposed to take care that the ark never touches the ground. It's carried from one point to another. It's to be held in esteem and honor and holy. But David and the fellows decide, hey, we got a better way. You know what, instead of them poles, because that's tiring, we got a new technology for this. And instead, we're gonna get us a brand new cart, a good mule, and we're gonna drive this thing all the way back to the city of David, right? It's a whole lot better, except it's not. Because god it's not the way God told him to do it. So as they get going, God had specified how the ark was to be moved, but we've got consequences. The best intentions, and the donkey stumbled. And the new cart rocked. And poor old Aza, who's bringing up the rear, decides and makes the same snap decision that you and I would have made it a hundred times. This ark can't touch the ground. I know I'm not supposed to touch it, but me touching the ark's got to be better than it hitting the ground. So I'm going to reach out to steady the thing. But what happens? Anger of God's kindled against Uzzah. Uzzah struck dead. Uzzah dies on the spot. David, his anger is kindled against the Lord for Uzzah being struck down. David is afraid of the Lord not the good kind of fear that we read about in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge that kind of fear is about respect David's scared of God so what do they do they take the Ark of the Covenant and they leave it in a Jebusite's house for three months because David wants to step back he's scared of God he's afraid he's going to mess something else up and in the end what consequences do we have well Let's think about the far-reaching effects, right? Because our sin doesn't always just affect us. We like to believe that sometimes, don't we? Well, this is about me and my decisions. No, that's not really reality. David's sin here because this isn't about Uzzah trying to straighten out the ark. This isn't Uzzah's fault that this happened. David gave the orders. Uzzah was following orders. Uzzah was set up to fail. This is David's fault. So because of David's poor decision making, Uzzah lost his life. You know what's conveniently missing here from Scripture that I think should be here, but there's just not enough text for it? What about Uzzah's family? They're now without him. We don't know if Uzzah was married, if he had some kids, maybe he had some brothers and sisters, had some parents, obviously. What about Uzzah's life that's gone in the Whole in the lives of all the people that loved him, he's gone. What about the nation of Israel? Oh. Because the ark was supposed to come back to the city of David, and, and the presence of God was to be in the city of David, and the blessings that come with being in the presence, all of that's gone. What do we read about about the Jebusite? that they leave it in his house? He got blessings, didn't he? The things in his household flourished for the next three months while they were figuring it out. David's consequences here not only touch his life, damage his relationship with God because David stepped back initially from God, caused us as family problems, caused some disorder in those that were transporting the ark, but also what happens in the city when they come back without the ark? You think people are asking questions? You think they're saying, hey, what happened to that ark? Why'd this go bad? What do you mean somebody died? I think they're beginning to unravel in David's leadership. All of those are far-reaching consequences of this, right? But this is not that bad, right? This is a little sin. It happened in the spur of the moment. He had a good idea. I think all of us can logically kind of diminish this sin. This is a little less sin, right? Because he was trying to do his best, and it all didn't work out. Okay. What about the big sin? What about the great sin, the one that we all know? David and Bathsheba. We read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 11, that David isn't at war with the rest of his army and his mighty men and his people. Instead, he's at home for whatever reason. It's not necessarily a sin that he's at home, but he's at home. But he goes out and he's walking around on his rooftops. And he sees Bathsheba bathing naked a couple of rooftops over. David had the opportunity, right there after he saw it, to shut this whole thing down, didn't he? See her? Hey, probably shouldn't have saw that. Let me close up the curtains, go back in the house, and find something else to do with my time. But what'd he do? Well, he not only saw her, he beheld her. You know what that means? That means he lingered. He kept looking. He spent some time on it. Not only did he behold her, but then he went and inquired about her. Hey, 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 who is that a couple of streets over? And let me figure out what's going on with her and who she belonged to. And then he sent for her. And then he lay with her. And then he schemed and deceived to have her husband murdered. You see, remember he first, she came back and was pregnant and so he said, "Well, I'll bring her husband back, and then we'll pretend that this was all his baby, and we'll, you know kind of move some pieces around." But what happened? he was too good of a guy and said, "I can't go and spend time with my wife when we're at war. I'm not going home. I'm going to sleep right here on the doorstep till you send me back." So he said, "Fine, let me send you back with letters so that we can essentially write your decree to murder you." And he had his general pull back. And kill Uriah the Hittite. And if if many of careful Bible students remember, in David's mighty men, remember when he was running away from Saul? He had his mighty men, that group of core people that was with him. You'll find in that text Uriah the Hittite was one of them. It's not like this is a guy that David didn't know. Based on the way Uriah acted, how good a soldier do you think Uriah was? Probably pretty good. How do you think that affected Joab that David wanted One of his best soldiers to be withdrawn from and murdered. How do you think that affects the rest of the army? But the sins and the consequences of this go on because as Samuel points out, the sword's never going to depart from your house. Your house is going to be a wreck. To the end of its existence, your house is going to be a wreck. The sword's never going to depart. That your wives will be taken from you in broad daylight. Because remember, it wasn't that David was some... Confirmed bachelor here, right? David's got six or seven wives, depending on how you want to count them. And Nathan said when he came to him, if you wanted another wife, I would have given it to you. But yet you went and stole somebody else's. But your wives will be taken in broad daylight. The child that Bathsheba's pregnant with will die. But was David the only one affected by this sin? And we just read through all the other people that are involved. I think sometimes when we look at this story, we think about David and how David reacted and what he, his mistakes and all that stuff. And I've preached that sermon. You've heard that sermon here, I'm sure, a bunch of times. What about your, what about Bathsheba's entire life being turned upside down? She lost her husband that she loved. Somehow she's found herself now married to David. Whether she co-signed on that or not is a whole other story for debate. But now she's found herself in David's house with a bunch of other wives. She's lost her husband. She's lost the person that she loved. She lost the child that she was carrying. Uriah was murdered. He was nothing but a good friend and a faithful companion of David. The army... If he'd do that to Uriah, who was one of his mighty men who goes way back with him, he'd kill me too. What about their confidence level and their leader? What about David's kids? To see what he did, they would have lost all respect for him. Obviously they did because it's the kids that took the wives and set to take the kingdom away from them. The nation as a whole is sovereign. David's sin spread through to everybody that he was affected with like the plague. Was David done sinning? No. I think that's part of the thing that we get, I think, when we look at the life of David, is if we don't put it in chronological order, we think that David was young and committed sins and then he grew old and got better. No, he didn't. David did, the first sin we looked at with Uzzah was young King David. David and Bathsheba is middle-aged King David. But when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 24, we are close to the end of David's life when David decides he's going to number the people. Now, is that necessarily a bad thing? I mean, don't we do a census here in the United States every so often to see how many people we got and who we need to be taken care of and all that? I mean, we can, you can make an argument that this isn't a terrible thing except the fact that God told him not to, Right? God said, don't. Now, why are we, why were they not supposed to number the people? Well, in the book of Numbers, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 and verse 19, very explicitly says that they are not to do a census because if they do and they see their might and their horses and their chariots, they will think they are strong and they're not strong because of God. He said, if you start counting up all you got, you're going to forget about me. If you start looking at your own strength and your own treasure and your own glory, you're going to forget that you are nothing without me. That was a warning that was given in Numbers. It was passed on. It was part of the law. But what were the consequences? 2 Samuel 24, verses 11 through 14. The seer Gad comes to David and says, you've done this thing and it's a terrible thing. And God says you got three choices of your punishment. Either you flee and you're pursued for three months, there's three days' pestilence, or there's there's three months' worth of, of death in the camp. You choose, David. Go back and choose. Now, any of you in here that have some country mamas and grandmamas, Know what the intellectual torture is of choosing your own punishment, right? Anybody have to go get their own switch? Right? You know what torture it is to go get your own switch. Because you can't get too good a switch, or you're going to get beat to death with it. But you can't get too weak a switch because you go get too weak a switch, and when that breaks, you've got to go get a second switch. I may have done that a time or two. But David's set up, right? He's got to choose The punishment that he's going to have. He's going to choose, but who does that punishment affect? I want you to read carefully back through that section. It's not just David. It's the entire nation that's going to suffer because of his decision. Because of David's choice. There are innocent people that had nothing to do with this that are going to lose their lives because of David's choice. The consequences of David's sin would affect everybody. So we're going to stop here in the middle of the lesson for a couple of quick points. One. If you think you can't come back because your sins got so big they ruined the lives of other people. I want to introduce you again to David. Two. Two. No matter how much we think our sins only affect us, there are always secondary casualties. There are people that we hurt that we may never know about. There are innocent people that will suffer the consequences of our sins that are completely and wholly innocent. But third, there is a path back from all of this. Because after we've laid out All of David's sins, well, not all of David's sins, three of David's major sins. After we've laid out David's sins and we've laid out the consequences and we laid out all those who have affected, does that change where we started, that David was a man after God's own heart? It doesn't. It doesn't say David used to be a man after God's own heart. Posthumously in the New Testament, it says David was a man after God's own heart. That David loved God. Okay, so how did David get back there? Well, let's go back and look back at these sins again. First of all, we have to understand what penitence or repentance is. That's a change. That is realizing that we've done something wrong, realizing we have hurt other people, and trying to make it right, trying to make a change. It has to be preceded by, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, godly sorrow. Now, I want to make a very, very important point here. Godly sorrow and being sad are not the same things. Godly sorrow and tears are not the same things. You can be really, really sad because you got caught. You can be really, really sad and cry some tears because you're in jail. You can be really sad and cry a bunch of tears because you lost a bunch of stuff. None of that's godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is when we understand That our sins have hurt our relationship with God. That's what godly sorrow is. It's not that I've been caught. It's not that this hurts. It's not that there's bad things that's going to happen to me. None of that is sorrow that leads to repentance. There are a lot of people that are sorry they got caught. But had they not got caught, would have kept on doing it. There are a lot of people that are sad about their consequences. But if not for the consequences... They would have kept on doing what they were doing. Godly sorrow is not really even about acknowledging the sin or admitting to it. It's about owning it. It's about owning it to the point where we're willing to do things to change. Now, this is a very, very hard concept in our culture. Because culturally, we're supposed to accept everybody however they are. And you're not supposed to change. God loves everybody, just accept them for who they are. You know what the problem with that is? The problem with that is we have to then make the supposition that because Jesus taught prostitutes and tax collectors that they stayed that way after meeting Jesus. So in first century Jerusalem, the church that was there had a brothel out back. Anybody buying that? No. They came and all of us can come to Jesus however we are, but you can't stay that way. You can come as broken and battered and full of sin as you are, but you can't stay that way. We've got to let that stuff go. We've got to be washed, cleansed, purged to start a new life. It doesn't matter what you've done when you get there, but that stuff's got to go away. We can't stay however we are. That, as a matter of fact, is just a childish concept. And it's a childish concept to think that somebody should accept you for doing things that are patently false and wrong. You know, if you're a jerk and your whole life's about being a jerk, we can't just say, well, you know, that Mikey's just a jerk. We just got to accept that. No, stop being a jerk. Just stop doing it. Try being nice. Try being kind. We have to change to be better for those that are around us. And that's what God expects us to do is to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? There's growth that has to happen there. We cannot stay how and who we are. We can't say, well, I'm just a sinner and I'm going to stay a sinner. That's not the way this works. It has to be accompanied by change about trying to get better. Does that mean we're never going to sin again? Nope. Does that mean we may, not, we may commit the same sin Next week or next month or next year? Absolutely. You may fall back into the same trap. But what are you doing about it? Are you trying to get better? Are you seeking help? Are you studying? Are you working on it? It doesn't mean we don't sin. What it means is what are we doing to try to get better? You know, if I'm a jerk every day and I can go, you know, three days without being a jerk, that's improvement, right? It's about getting better and putting days back to back. So how did David repent of these things? Well, in moving the ark... We see this illustrated in his anger over Uzzah's death. He was upset. It was, he wasn't callous to the fact that Uzzah died. He was upset at Uzza's death. He had a fear of God where he was afraid and he ran away from God. He left the ark behind. But let's go back to 1 Chronicles 15 and verse 13. He acknowledged that the only way he was going to find redemption was in God. That the answer to his sin is God. Friends, this is a crossroads that we meet in life when we commit sin. Because there's consequences, we want to blame God for the consequences. But it's not God's fault. God tells us up front there's consequences to sin. If we choose to sin, we're the ones that are responsible for the consequences. Because God's enforcing what he already told us to do. It's not God's fault. That's like being mad at the cop for getting a speeding ticket. Look, you were doing 75 in a 25. You should have got a ticket, Right? It's not the cop's fault. It's not the speed limit sign's fault. It's your fault. You made the decision. We have to understand that in acknowledging that sin, we have to seek God's way in order to change. That we tried it our way, we made mistakes, but are we now seeking God's way? And he acknowledged God's greatness in giving thanks. Again, 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 8 through 36 is. David's prayer of thanksgiving to God after all this had happened, right? We can blame God, which gets us nowhere, or we can turn to God, who's the only one that can do anything about our sins, and that's what David did here. What about in the sin against Bathsheba and Uriah in 2 Samuel 11? Well, we have that in his acknowledging the sin. God against you and you alone have I sinned. Well, didn't we just look at this? Was it just against God? No, he sinned against a bunch of people. But we got to understand that the buck stops and ends with our relationship with God. He sinned against God first, and by sinning against God, also sinned against all these other people. But we have to understand that our relationship with God is of premost importance. He fasted and wept and prayed and begged God for the child's death. Again, this is something that, that we've got to struggle with here. Right? Because it's Nathan told him. That it was God's decree and God's punishment that this child would die. So David could have blamed God. He had full right to say, God, you're the one that killed this child because that's what you said is punishment for my sin. But that's not the position David took. David wept and fasted and prayed and begged God because God is a merciful God. And on the thought that God may relent because God could relent. David was in such distress in his prayers and fasting and begging God. Remember what David's court and his advisors around him, they thought? They thought he was going to do himself harm when he found out the child died. David was, was in such a vulnerable state, they thought he would do himself harm. But what did he do? When he found out the child died, he rose himself, washed, cleansed himself, offered prayers to God, and then went and started eating, right? And they came in and they questioned him. David, what are you doing here? Help us understand what's going on. And he said, while the child was alive, I begged God. But now that he's gone, I can't bring him back to me, but I can go to him. David understood the relationship that he needed God. And that God could even relent of punishment that God proclaimed upon him. But now David had to straighten his life up and fix it to be better so that he could go and be with the child that was lost. So how do we see that manifest and play out? I think we are foolish if we don't understand that David was a better wife, better husband to Bathsheba and a better father to Solomon than he was to any of his other wives and children. How do we know that? Look how Solomon turned out. The rest of David's kids are a disaster. But Solomon, we see as he comes into manhood as he takes over as the king, as he continues to grow and flourish, how did Solomon get to be so wise and so grounded and so reliant upon God if not for David pouring himself into Solomon? There was nothing that David could do to redeem his other children who were grown at this point, but he could try to make it right and redeem Solomon. He could pour all of his effort, his time, and his energy. And we have at David's deathbed... Do we have any of David's other wives with him in his deathbed? Nope. We've got Bathsheba and Solomon and Nathan. Those are the three people that are there as David dies. Why? Because David changed. He realized all the mistakes that he made and he tried to be better. Friends, that's the other important part about this. We cannot undo our past. It's impossible. There's nothing we can do about yesterday or last week or last year. What we can do is something about tonight and tomorrow. What we can do is to start moving forward and not repeat the mistakes that we made in the past. I can't do anything about that. There's people that, this thing's getting fussy on me. There's people that that I grew up with that when they think of me, think about all the bad things I did as a punk kid and teenager and early 20-something. And that's all they'll ever remember of me. So the idea of me being a gospel preacher, teaching Bible class, or even going to church is absurd to them because they know who I used to be. And there are some relationships that we're going to have that are like that, that they know how bad we can be. We can't do anything about that. We can make a change and we can move forward. And the next relationship that we build and the next thing that we do, we can pour our effort and energy into making sure that that one's right we got to understand that all we can do is move forward, and that's what David did. We can look at Psalm 51 and how David poured his heart out to God. I can't read Psalm 51 without seeing David's tears on those pages. When you see the way he poured himself out, being completely vulnerable about all that he did, that is what repentance looks like if you ever want a picture of repentance read through psalm 51 that's what repentance should look like in our lives In his life after again david continued to move forward and to be better he couldn't undo the past that sword never left him at his house his sons did lay with his wives in public they did try to take the kingdom away from him. all of those things happened but because of his changes solomon was able to take over the kingdom David's penitence and numbering the people. How do we see that illustrated? Well, verse ten of Second Samuel twenty-four. His heart was troubled. His conscience sparked. Hey, we did this thing. Uh, I really shouldn't have done that. And then he went to Gad, the seer, and he acknowledged that he had sinned, and acknowledged to Gad, and acknowledged to God, and asked and begged for forgiveness to from God for the sins that he had committed, and he cast himself upon God's mercy. He followed all of his instructions. God, what do I need to do to make this right? And he meticulously and carefully followed all that had happened. And then when we get to the sacrifice at the end, when we get to the sacrifice, he had every opportunity to duck that, right? We find him on Ornan's threshing floor, And our dad said, look, you're king. I will give you everything you need for the sacrifice. Then we have one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. There is no sacrifice without cost. I cannot sacrifice to the Lord something that costs me nothing. And when we understand that in the big picture of the Bible, we understand that in the picture of sacrifice is cost. And our sins, the sacrifice that was paid was paid by God through his son. There is tremendous cost where the sacrifice means nothing. And we see that unfold in David saying, No, I will pay the cost for this, even when he had an opportunity to walk away scot free. We could go through and tear apart Psalm 6 and 32 and 38 and 51 and 102 and 130 and 143, and I could put up dozens of Psalms up there. We don't have time to do that tonight. But what we need to understand is it's not about whether or not you and I commit sin, it's about what we do about the sin. What are we going to do about it? We're all going to slip, we're all going to stumble, we're all going to fall. But are we willing to turn when we do? You see, the moral of this story is that there is a path back home. But it's not always easy. Sometimes there's thorns. And sometimes in that path back home, by the time we get home, we're broken and hungry and starving and beat to death. But that path is still there. What we learn from David is that he's sinful and so are all the rest of us. What we learn is that the attitude, his choice, his decision, what he did about sin is what sets him apart. What makes him a man after God's own heart. But it's the same thing that you and I can do. He repented when confronted. He didn't get defensive. He didn't talk about everybody else's sins. He repented when his heart condemned him. And he sought forgiveness on God's terms. David didn't argue with God about this. We can go back and look through every one of those sections again. David didn't say, no, God, the cost is too high. What if I only did this? Like you and I sometimes try to do, right? Yeah, I know I probably should do this, but what if I only did this? Would that work? This is not a negotiation. When we are truly penitent, we accept the consequences and trust in God's mercy. That whatever it costs, it costs. Whatever payments have to be made, they have to be made. But we will accept the fact that God will help get us through it and bear the consequences, even though they're ours. David's penitence is summed up in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. And that's the last verse we're going to look at tonight. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, and what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourself to be clear. In this matter, that's what repentance looks like. That's what the path back home looks like. So tonight, wherever you are and whatever you've done, there's a path back home. I don't care what you've done. Have you murdered? Have you defrauded your entire nation? Have you ruined lives of countless men, women, and children? No? Then you're not as bad as David. And if he could get back home... So can you. Regardless of what we think is keeping us away from that path back home. The only thing that's really stopping you is the first step. All things are ready tonight for you to come back home. For you to learn of God. For you to trust God and for you to love him. That that love and that trust gives you the confidence to turn away. To embrace Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And to have all your sins washed away, rising to be selfless, rising to help others that are hurting. But maybe you're a child of God and you've wandered away, and you think what you've done is too bad to come back from. Know that if David can come back, you can come back. And I can line up a dozen other characters all throughout the pages of Scripture that did horrible things too, much worse than anything you've ever done. And they found a place back home. Only thing's missing. The only challenge is taking the first step. Do that while we stand and while we sing.